You're listening to Elk Point Baptist Church. Subscribe to our podcast to hear every sermon and like us on Facebook by searching Elk Point Baptist Church, located in Elk Point, South Dakota. All right, so today, or, or last week, we did basically an introductory lesson into the two lessons that we're going to be looking at this week and next week, all about defending the enemy. If you were here last week, you know that that word enemy really has to do or denotes the people that are not yet saved, the lost, the people of the world that desperately need Jesus Christ. Um, they can be pictured as the enemy. Sometimes they can feel like the enemy, but really um, they're desperately needing Jesus just as much as we did before we knew him. Uh, just as much as we do on a continual basis. They need to know Jesus. So the title of, of this week and next week is Defending the Enemy. This is part one. So turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. We're starting right at the beginning of the chapter. Joshua 10. There's a point in our Christian walk when we face, let me make sure I got a timer going here, when we are faced with a trial. There's a point in our Christian walk when we are faced with a trial. In the sense of the Gibeonites, after the word got out about their treaty with Israel, which I'm sure it spread quickly, they were faced with war from the nearby cities. They were forced to make a decision because of the ensuing war. Would they flee back to their old allies and ask for forgiveness and explain the reason for their treaty? Or would they turn to God for help? When you were first saved, did you have a moment like that? When you're first saved, you now have to make a decision between your old life and your new life, the direction now that you are headed. It can be a very scary situation to look your friends in the eyes and say, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not going there anymore. And it can often feel like sometimes, I would say I was fortunate not to experience this maybe right away, but it can feel like a war ensuing. It can feel like a major battle. When you make a decision for Christ, the opposition is now headed your direction. So when we we picture the Gibeonites, think about that. They had to make a decision between fleeing back to their old allies, to to the world, to their old nature, or would they turn to God for help? Let's read chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king. And now the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. They were feared greatly, or that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city. So Gibeon is a mighty force. It's a great city here. Because Gibeon made a decision to ally with Israel, these other cities feared greatly as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all the men thereof were mighty. Verse 3, Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Param, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Dabber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me, 
that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up they and their hosts, all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua, this is their moment of, of panic here, they sent uh, unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Let's pray. Lord, all throughout the Bible there are Lessons that can be learned about how we, as your people, can cling to you, Lord, your message of love towards us. But, Lord, there's also a, another thread, Lord, of, of the people in the Bible and the people still now, Lord, that so desperately need you. And, Lord, may we learn from your words today from the book of Joshua how in the abundant life, Lord, there is a time when we desperately need to seek you seek your protection, and those uh, along our walk, Lord, in our faith, that we're going to run into people like Gibeon that so desperately need you, Lord, and need a helping hand from you. And it, just like the, the Israelites and Joshua, Lord, they, being your servants, stepped in and, and helped and were used by you in a mighty way. Lord, I pray that we have a heart like Joshua. I pray that we have a heart like you do, Lord, for all those that so desperately need you, that we have compassion for those that need you, Lord. And I pray you do a mighty work through me and in all of us today that we would learn how to be better servants for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when you make agreements with the enemy or you make promises to friends that maybe are not yet saved, to coworkers, family members, expect to end up paying a price and having to defend them in order to protect yourself. So in the instance of the Canaan land, this is the promised land. This is the abundant life. This is, this is the promise from God, the nation, the land that is just full of milk and honey and promises and wonderful things. Um, but there, there, there is a war sometimes along the way. There's battles that have to be faced and there's decisions that have to be made and... Um, we need to be careful. There's definitely a picture in, in the Canaan land and all the cities they have to, to rid the, the land of. It's, it's the world that's still within us. It's, it's the world that still surrounds us. It's the, it's the old nature that we are battling with. And, um, you know, there's a reason God said that you have to get rid of these, these cities, these nations, you have to destroy them completely, burn them out. The, the sin that was there, the false idols that, that were in that land needed to go, and the false idols within us need to be getting, gotten rid of. They, they need to be vanquished. They need to be burned with fire. They need to be utterly destroyed. There cannot be any remnant left of the old nature within us, and that's a constant thing, a renewing of our minds, that we have to constantly seek and be in the Word and prayer, asking, Lord, what can... what in me is still left that can be gotten rid of. And the Canaan land, the promised land, the abundant life that they're promised, 
was not an instant victory. It was not an instant, here is everything for you. No, it was, it was something that while relying on God to help with the battles, God's people had to do steps, had to go through a process of ridding the land of the false idols, of the sin that was there. This is why God's people must remain separated from the world. We can't get out of the world. We are in it. But we have to remain separate. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So I wonder whether Paul had Joshua in mind when he wrote 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He said, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We don't get entangled and ensnared by worldly things if we are to war for Christ, if we are to be his soldier, being in the middle of false idols, being in the middle of sinning against God, whatever that may be, will strip us of our ability to defend ourselves and to fight for Christ. So let's look at the king's call to the armies. The king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, whose name means Lord of Righteousness, or My Lord is Righteous, heard what the Gibeonites had done and announced that the traitors had to be punished. Remember, the Gibeonites tricked Israel into thinking that they had come from a far country to get them to make a treaty with them. And if a great city like Gibeon surrendered to the Jews, then one more barrier was removed against the advancement of Israel in the land. So Gibeon was a mighty city. It was a major force that could have stopped Israel, potentially. But now that's no longer an obstacle in the way of God's people. And it was important for the Canaanites to recover that key city if they had to take it by force. So four other Canaanite kings allied with Adonai Zedek and their combined armies now encamped before Gibeon. Let's look back at verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken I, which was probably a very scary thing, especially since the city of I had first been victorious, shamed the name of God, now had been utterly destroyed, as he had done to Jericho and her king. So he had done to Ai and her king, and, now, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly. In other words, the rest of the sin in that land, the rest of the false 
idol-worshiping nations in that land feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities and because it was greater than the city of Ai and the men thereof were mighty. And I find it very interesting that Gibeon was one of the stronger nations and the fear of God and his people made them seek treaty instead of being destroyed. There was a hint of that in Jericho with Rahab. There was a fear or a respect of God and who God really is that helped them make a decision. Which is another reason we can't talk nicey-nice in the pulpit. We can't sugarcoat the truth. We can't alter the gospel. We have to say it as it is, the good and the bad. There is a real bad. There is a real imminent threat of judgment, righteous judgment, that God has the right to make, and there is a penalty for not choosing to go with God. Gibeon if they had stood against God, would have been destroyed. They knew this. It's also interesting that the other cities in Canaan felt the strength of Gibeon to be so great that they needed five cities to come together with all their armies just to be able to fight against Gibeon. Look at verse 3. Wherefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto, unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Param, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, unto Deborah, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, gathered themselves together, went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So imagine what it must have felt like for the Gibeonites, the people that just now, if you were to look at somebody maybe that just got saved, they made peace with the invaders and were now at war with their former allies. They were now at war with, with their old friends. As this confederation of armies and kings assembled, God in heaven probably laughed because unknown to them, he was using these events to accomplish his own purpose. Instead of having five individual battles, it was now one battle. Remember last week we looked a little bit at the fact that God would take some mistake that Joshua and the leaders of Israel made, maybe a decision that we thought was right, didn't seek God's counsel, Realized it was a mistake, but God can still do something mighty with it. This is what he did here. Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 4 says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away the cords from, from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Instead of having to defeat these five city-states one by one, he would help Joshua conquer them all at once. Talk about a time saver. That would have been a long, ongoing battle to get rid of the old nature in our lives, to be changed, 
we stumble, make a mistake, make a, a rash decision like Peter might have and just rushed in and done what he thought was best, for God to step in and say, it's okay, I still got you like I promised. I'm going to do something better with this because you're still mine. Just as God used the defeat at I to form a battle plan for victory over I in chapter 8, he also used Joshua's mistake with the Gibeonites to protect Gibeon and accelerate the conquest of Canaan. These mistakes, or the mistakes that we make, can embarrass us, especially those mistakes that are caused by our running ahead of the Lord and not seeking His will. But we need to remember that no mistake is final for the dedicated Christian. There's not one mistake that is enough to separate us from God, to deter God's plan, to make us any less of His. God can use even our our blunders to accomplish His purposes. So no matter what Satan throws at us, God finds a way to make it work for Him. That's right. All things work together for Somebody defines success as the art of making your mistakes when nobody's looking. But a better definition would be the art of seeing victory where other people people only see defeat. It's very easy to feel defeated by our mistakes. In fact, Satan often reminds us, how many times have you felt like this? He reminds us of the mistakes we have made in order to pull our eyes off God. You're still the old person. You're still that old, terrible sinner. Satan pulls us from seeing God's promises. But thankfully, the Bible is full of encouragement. You get in the Word and you see it. When we are feeling afflicted, we have promises that we can cling to. And I've got a bunch of these that little content slides there for you, uh, Ryan, if you want to throw them up. When we are feeling afflicted. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10 says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. And Psalm 34, 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but The Lord delivereth him out of them all. When we are feeling discouraged, the next slide, we need to stand firm. Hebrews 10, 35 and 36 says, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men. In other words, have character like men. Be strong. When we are feeling broken, guess what? God saves. Psalm 145, 19 says, He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth, 
such as be of contrite or remorseful spirit. When we feel like the world or our enemies have the advantage and there's no hope in overcoming them, one thing we've definitely learned from this section of scriptures, no one can stop God's plan for you. There's a promised land, a life abundant for you, and nobody can stop that. God has a plan for you. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Psalm 40, verse 5, Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. When we are fearful, do not fear. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, And the Lord, he it is that do it, that doth go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. Deuteronomy 4.31, For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. Amen. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. In Psalm 118.6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Psalm 145.18, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. is full of promises. <laughs> and there's more. When we have nothing stable to stand on in our life, run to the rock. Psalm 62.6 6 says, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He is not distant. He is not forsaking. No, he, he is very present. And he's helping us constantly. Psalm 9.9, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. How many times have you felt oppressed? The weight of the world is on you. The pressure, the force of opposition towards you. The Lord is a refuge for those who are oppressed. A refuge in times of trouble, when there are trials, and that's a silly thing to say because there's almost always trials, some bigger than others, guess what? He has overcome. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light affliction, no matter how big it may be, for our light affliction, the way Paul described it, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. It's a guarantee. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
All those things, those trials, the, the things that Satan is doing, I've already come, overcome all that. James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. That word perfect means complete. In John 14, 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Rewind back to, to, I think it's the beginning of chapter 2 in Joshua. I don't have the verse for this. Who was standing right there looking at the walls of Jericho with Joshua, sword in hand? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is a fighter and a mighty one. He's the Lord of hosts. That mighty army of God, Jesus is right there at the front with the sword in hand. You believe in God? Believe also in me. God gives us reminders. Psalm 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. The beautiful thing is, the more time we spend with God, the more our heart is aligned with the desires of his heart. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that, the picture of that yoke there. I imagine myself many times, if you've seen two oxen side by side yoked together, plowing a field, I imagine myself on the right side, Jesus on the left, my legs dangling there, I'm not doing anything, and he's pulling the weight. Because <laughs> there's times I just don't have what it takes, but he's right there, yoked with me, plowing forward. When we are feeling overcome by our failures, there's the restoring power of prayer. We have a direct line of, of communication with God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Be careful for nothing, worry for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I could definitely say all the moments I've had of fear and doubt and dread and unknown, I think of still so real, <laughs> but when Jaron was born and that unknown was there, that fear that, that ensued, not only was I a new dad because that was there, but now he has Down syndrome. <laughs> I went to God in prayer and that peace that just, as it says here, passes Passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds, shall calm you, shall settle you, 
You will be kept. You'll be protected. Your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. He just overwhelmingly gave me that peace of mind. He'll be okay. I've got him. God says we will, what? We will overcome. That's a hard truth to learn. That's, a, that's one I, I constantly go back to. He says, I will overcome. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That word power is deutimus. His might is his mighty army. Be strong in the Lord in, in the power of his might. His entire force of undefeatable hosts is, is with us and behind us. It is in his full power that we will overcome. We just have to keep coming back to him and saying, Lord, I don't got it, but I know you do. God tells us as well that we are conquerors. Romans 8, 37, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So when you are fighting to move closer to God and when you fail, remember that God has something to say about it. There's also another thing we need to remember before we move forward. It's, it's the Bible is full of encourage, encouragement for the believer. The Bible is full of encouragement for the believer, but let's think about this from the Gibeonite point of view. They represent those who do not know and do not believe in God and who have not been yet saved. Those who are not yet saved do not have the same hope as those who are saved. It's just not there. They, they might intellectually understand the concept, but they don't have that peace yet. They don't, they don't have that internal hope of Jesus Christ. They don't have an understanding quite the same. Before we look at the details of what the Gibeonites did or what people do who are not yet saved, we need to remember the pain and despair they are in. So let's look at the Gibeonites' call to Joshua as we conclude here. Look at verse 6 and 7 again. Joshua 10, verse 6 and 7. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua. In other words, they made a decision to go to God here. Saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. It's like this turning point for them. Will they choose God or will they choose their old nature? Or at this point, just where they are. Will they choose the old ways or will they make a decision to go with God? This is their salvation moment. So verse 7 is basically like the response God would give us, which is just so beautiful. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him. Jesus came with his entire force, sword in hand, when we called him, and all the mighty men of valor, and came to our rescue. 
You remember the moment Jesus came and saved you? Man, was that good. And here it is, God's people, along with God's army, his might and force, is coming to save Gilgal, or uh, the Gibeonites at Gilgal. It's beautiful. In spite of their paganism, these Gibeonites are a good example for people to follow today. When, we, when they knew they were headed for destruction, their realization of, of their eternal damnation, if we were to picture them as the people that don't know Christ yet, they came to Joshua, which literally means Jehovah is Savior, and obtained from him a promise of protection. It is our prayer that lost sinners realize their predicament and turn to Jesus Christ by faith. And when those who are saved are faced with danger, they would turn to God as well. And when the Gibeonites found themselves in danger, they believed Joshua's promise and called on him for help. Jehovah saves. That's what God's people need to do when they find themselves facing the battles of life. The Gibeonites turned the whole burden over to Joshua and trusted him to keep his word, and he did. We, as the, those that are saved, put or made a decision to put our whole burden over to God, trusting he would save us, and he did. I don't know anybody's heart here, but if you do not know Christ yet, would you do that today? Trust what God says in his word, that he will protect you and save you. You believe that, and he will. It's that simple. (laughs) Jesus says, not only that, he has an abundant life for you. So next week, we're going to finish this out in part two. We're going to see the results of this now. So today, we looked at the Gibeonites, the lost getting saved. Now we're going to look at what happened. There's a big battle that happens and and God comes through. 